Hello, this is Pastor Kicker. I am the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Clinton, Missouri. And this is the ninth class of a 12-week class that I'm currently teaching on Sunday mornings. Our particular topic right now is a Lutheran theology of worship, especially in regards to um, looking at the gifts that the Lord gives to us in the Eucharist, the rest that Jesus gives to us in his body and his blood in Holy Communion. So thank you for joining us in this class. I invite you to the next one. It's Sunday mornings here at church at 9 a.m. Or continue to follow along with us online too. May God bless you. And the Lord be with you always. Um, the Lord be with you. Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, and sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is a great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults, and keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, and the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. O Lord, we give you thanks and praise for your law, for your word that goes forth and opens our eyes to see our presumptuous sins, our faults and our failures, our inability to follow you as you call us to. Father, your law is good. It is holy. Your precepts establish our path, and yet we fall so short. And we come to you, Lord, broken by that law, unable to fulfill it in our own hearts, in our own hands and words. Lord, may the words of our mouth, the meditations of our heart, be acceptable in your sight. We pray, O Lord, that by your Holy Spirit, you would give us the words of Jesus and the heart of Christ, the mind of the Lord, 
that in him all that we say and do would be acceptable in your sight. We give you thanks and praise for sending him, the Lamb, who atoned for our sins and who fulfilled the law in every way for us so that we would be saved by your grace. As your sheep gather in this home, your house today, we ask that you would open our ears to hear your word, our eyes to see you by faith, and that you would help us turn and see and live, feasting on your Son in his word and in his sacraments. We ask this in your Son's most precious name. Amen. Um, okay, today's, I think this is the ninth class um, of this 12-week class that we're currently having on uh, a theology of Lutheran worship. Um, we're going to get into Hebrews 10 today, um, but just a word before we do. Um, I was thinking about, you know, what brings people here on Sunday morning? Why, what gets you out of bed and brings you to uh, the lower fellowship area of Trinity Lutheran Church? Why do you come? And it's because we desire to be faithful, right? We desire to be faithful Christians, to be a faithful woman in the Lord, a faithful man in the Lord. And so we come um, longing to be faithful to him. That's why we come. And it's a lifelong pursuit, right? It's, it's a daily thing. Um, you know, throughout the week, it looks different at home, that, that longing to be faithful as you, have, you tend to the vocations the Lord's given you. But here on Sunday, you know, we have the opportunity to gather here all together um, with our vocations set aside, at least the ones you do for labor or pay, um, and we gather together. And, you know, how we, how we journey on that path of faithfulness, there are multiple ways and avenues of which we can do that. There are plenty of opportunities. Um, there's a wide field of possibilities on what that looks like, on how we're to be faithful to Christ. Um, how can we be a faithful uh, child of God? And, um, you know, that, that impacts every day of our life, every little thing that's always running through the back of our hearts, right? What, what's the faithful approach in this? How are we faithful? Um, so there's a wide range of this faithfulness, how we pursue it. Now, when it comes to learning the faith, so what we do here for an hour together, learning together, there, there's kind of four areas um, that help us in this striving for faithfulness. Um, the first area is um, exegetical or uh, looking at what the word says, right? That's what we do here on Sunday morning. We'll open up and look at the scriptures. We look at the word. Um, I'm going to use an analogy this morning. I've had a heck of a weekend with our chicken coop at our house because we have goats. We have goats who think they're chickens 
or at least who think they belong in the chicken coop. And they have been, it, it's, I told Alyssa yesterday, it looked like a bomb went off in our chicken coop. I, the goats got in and just made a terrible mess of it. But if you rewind a year and a half, uh, we bought this nice, red, beautiful chicken coop off of Amazon. It was a kit. It gets shipped to our house, and there it is. It's all the parts that you need to build this coop. Well, um, so it is with the word, right? The word is the very source of the thing which we're building. Um, our faith, uh, the church is built on the word. Um, th those are, that's the material. Um, but it's not the only avenue. Uh, systematic, systematics or doctrine or the teaching is looking at what this word means. Um, doctrine is none other than God's truth. So good doctrine exists for the sake of bad doctrine, right? How are we going to put the house together? What makes it sturdy? We all have the same parts, right? We're all looking at the same scripture passages, but the coop needs to be built. And um, the coop can be put together in a very bad way. Um, and if it is, goats get in. <laughs> so there's, there's important pieces of the word, right? Um, one would be go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, where does that piece go? Um, and the one that we're thinking about for these 12 weeks is take eat, this is my body, this is my blood. Where does that piece go? or all the pieces of the scripture that have to do with who God is, the Trinity. Where do those pieces go? What does this mean? The, the, it's, we gotta build, right? So systematics is part of the faithfulness that we strive for. We wanna know what the word says, but we're also looking at, so what's that mean? What does it mean? And good theology exists for the sake of correcting bad theology. We want the house to be sturdy, um, we don't want coyotes coming in. We don't want wolves coming in. And so that's also an important part of the process. Um, the third area is historical. Uh, how has the word, how has the word been believed? Up and down the church. How has the word been believed? believed. Um, historical uh, observation of the word matters because none of us none of us exist in some sort of a vacuum where we can pretend like we are purely objective and I'm coming to the word purely objective. No, we're all a product of history. And throughout the history of the church, um, that history has been passed down to us, and it shapes our presuppositions. It shapes the way that we think. It shapes the way that we speak. It shapes the way that we believe. And so as we're dealing with this word, it's always the same word. That's always running throughout the, the, our approach to be faithful. But we're looking at different aspects. What does it say 
What does it mean? How has that word been believed throughout the history of the church? Um, historical uh, observation does matter. Um, because this word's been around for a while. So it, we want to see what the early church was saying about that word. We want to see what that same word was, what were people saying about it in the later Middle Ages? What were people saying about it in the Reformation? What were people saying about it 100 years ago? Um, and even more today, you know, what did my father say about that word? What did his father say about that word? What did my parents say about that word? We're always products of our history. Um, and then the last one, practical. Uh, why does the word matter? Right, we have practical questions when it comes to this word. You know, what does it mean for me? Uh, what, what does that mean I'm supposed to do then? Right? Do I, you know, when I got the chicken coop, uh, it was like, well, do I put the food inside the coop in this area? Do I put it outside? The, or do I put it in a second area? Or do I, I found out you don't put it inside the coop. That's, that's what the goats are going for, right? But these practical questions matter because the word impacts our faith and that faith drives our actions. So it causes me to have questions about, well, what does that mean then for you know, the way that I speak with my mother, my father, my spouse, my children? What does it mean for my employment, how I work? What does it mean as a citizen in a country like America? Um, all these practical implications also matter. So as Christians who are striving to be faithful, we're spending time in each area with this word. Now, uh, I'll tip my hand a little bit. The class was structured this way. It is structured this way. We spent uh, the first two weeks talking about systematics, right? What this word means, or the doctrine of the church when it comes to worship, lex orandi, lex credendi. Um, now we have moved to exegetical, and we've been here for the last uh, now four weeks, and we're looking at that word, just what it says, and, and then we're talking about what it means too. Um, I want to get to, because now we're at week nine, we only have nine, 10, 11, 12, four weeks left. I want to get to these too, historical and practical, looking at um, and that's what this book will help us look through, the historical practice of the church. How has this word, this is my body, this is my blood, how is that word believed throughout the history of the church? And so that's what we're going to get to after. That's my goal. By the end of this class, we're going to be here, okay? This is how seminary itself is structured. This is how, when you, when you, if you study theology in any seminary, this is not in particularly a Lutheran thing, across the board, denominations, when, when you're studying or learning the faith, there's exegetical, systematics, historical, and practical implications, and those are the departments that you're in. Um, it was that way at SBU in the Baptist University. It was that way at Concordia Seminary. Now, each denomination uh, will tend to perhaps focus on a particular area over one or the other. But the point is, is that all four are 
areas for faithfulness to be enriched and pursued. Um, you know, we, 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 cannot, we cannot just read the word, but then also not think about what that actually means for my life and the practical implications. And, and we cannot think, we cannot just read the historical um, development of the church and what the church has always believed without also reading the word itself. Right? All of these things go together. You can't just deal with systematics and what the word means, again, if you're not looking at the historical implications. Well, if, if I come to a conclusion that this word means something different, but for the last 2,000 years of the church, no one's believed that, that should be a red flag to me. Um, so, without further ado, let's go back into the word. We're up here. We've been here for a while. Hebrews chapter 10. Okay, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Now, this is fascinating because um, that is a psalm that is being quoted and I believe it's Psalm 40. Uh, Barb. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Let's look at Psalm 40. Um, and what's fascinating about um, the writer to the Hebrews is he says, this is what Christ says. Psalm 40. He says, he puts the psalm in Christ's mouth. This is what Christ says, Psalm 40. But if you look at the subtitle of Psalm 40, who wrote it? David. This is Psalm of David. Well, then who, said, who spoke it? Both. Christ's, this is Christ's words that David was carried by the Holy Spirit to, uh, to pray. And look at Psalm 40. Um, let's see. We'll start with verse, verse 4, when we start talking about sacrifices. In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. I have told the glad news of deliverance in the great congregation. Behold, I have not restrained my lips, as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your deliverance within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness 
from the great congregation. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head. My heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let those be put to shame and disappointed altogether who seek to snatch away my life. Let those be turned back and brought to dishonor who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, Great is the Lord. But as for me, I am poor and needy. But the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, oh my God. Where does the Spirit take your mind as you're hearing those words? Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, good, good insight, Rachel. Yeah, even in our world today, yeah, Christ is among us in the poor and needy. Um, the cross is here, right? Yeah. It's, it's clear. It's, um, it's clearly here. We're talking about sacrifice and sin and evil encompassing me to snatch away my life. David, he prophesied of Christ without even knowing it specifically, but the Spirit carried him. The Lord Jesus carried him um, to speak these words. Uh, Evils encompass me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me. What's he talking about? The the Lord is sinless, Hebrews said. He was like us in every way, the letter to the Hebrews. He was like us in every way, yet without sin. But the Lord is saying here, my iniquities have overtaken me. Because all of the sins of the world was placed on him. Yeah, the sins of the world are placed on him and he owns them. He says, my. And that goes back to... um, goes back to that image of the Redeemer. Your sins now belong to another. He, the sin that you commit, that you have committed, they are not yours anymore. Jesus says, my iniquity. That's my sin now. Um, He claims them for himself this body that you have prepared for me it is laid with your iniquities Uh, this is isaiah isaiah's prophecy let's look at isaiah 53 or is it 55 53 he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces he was despised and we esteemed him not Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let's back let's go back to Hebrews. So he, so Hebrews chapter 10 verse 5, Christ came into the world and he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, and burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And what's the will of the Lord? Well, he'll keep writing. When he said above, You have neither desire nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he had it, then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. What was it about the body of Jesus that sanctifies us? Your, yeah, your sin was on it. My iniquities, Jesus says, they're mine now. Um, you know, this is why Paul says his concern about taking your, your body and, and making it one with a prostitute. You know, he says, you, don't you know that you were bought with a price? Um, that what you do with your body, you're doing to the Lord? Um, your sin, it was on him. Um, Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Sins that can never be taken away. That was the Old Covenant. What's the New Testament? Your sins taken away. All right, look at Jeremiah 31, 34. Uh, which was quoted earlier in the letter. It makes all the difference. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will, re I will remember their sins no more. But a sacrifice has to be made. I mean, could the Lord have remembered our sins no more by snapping his finger? Yeah, the Lord can do anything. But what does the word tell us? I'll be merciful toward their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. You have prepared a body for me. My iniquities consume me. So your sin has to have a place to go to be taken away from you. And that place is the body of Christ. Jeremiah 31, 34. I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. It's the very first thing that the angel Gabriel says to Mary. Um, you're going to have a baby. You're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. 
And she knew early on, because she was a faithful woman, that a sword would pierce his heart and hers as well. Because what has to take place for sins to be removed? I mean, it's like you put yourself in her shoes as a mother and you're told this wonderful news that you're going to have a child. And then within the same sentence, you're told he's going to die. It's why she's there every step of the way, even at the cross. She spent her whole life nurturing and caring for him, knowing what was going to happen. He's going to save his people from their sins. See, if the angel had said anything else, he's going to save his people from political oppression, what would she have thought? He's going to be king. All right! He's going to save the Chiefs from their Super Bowl drought. All right, quarterback! He's going to save his people from their sins. Oh. She knew right then and there. You know the song, Mary, did you know? She knew. (laughs) I can answer the question. She knew. Because she was faithful. Um, When she hears the word of the Lord... And the angel speaks to her. She says, let it be done to me according to your word. Hard words for a mother to say. Um, We'll keep reading. Verse 12, when Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. This is still that Jeremiah passage. He adds this, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. For where there is forgiveness of these, there's no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay, look at verse 18, right? Forgiveness of sins means there's no longer any offering that needs to take place for sin. This is what makes Jesus' covenant better as well. It was once and for all. Jesus is not repeatedly sacrificed even today. Right? And this is a distinction between uh, our Lutheran teaching, what this word means, and, and Roman Catholicism. That when we celebrate the supper, in no way are we believing that Jesus is being sacrificed again. The word 
the word says what it says, so it means what it says. Um, sacrifices once for all. And then in verse 25, because of him, because of Jesus and all that he's done for us, what does he say that we should encourage one another to do? Go to worship. Meet together. Yeah, meet together. Meet together. Koinonia. Um, <coughs> encourage one another. Stir one another up in love and good works. Meeting together. So let's look at Acts chapter 2, where the church first meets together. And uh, I threw this word at you at the very first class, and now we're going to come back around to it because um, it's of, it has major implications, practical implications, of what's the church do when she meets together? What is it that we do? What are we gather around? What are we meeting together around? We'll look at Acts 2 when the church is formed. Um, Acts chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit. Um, we'll start with, you know, the Holy Spirit comes, and we'll, st we'll see Peter's sermon here. Um, verse 14. Look at his sermon. He says, uh, Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice, addressed them, Men of Judea, all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. Right? They're all talking in foreign languages, so it sounds foolish to the world. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they will prophesy, proclaim. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, vapor of smoke, sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. Before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day, it will come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now here's where he gets to the law. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Um, this is one of, you know, one of the earliest confessions of the church. You killed him, but God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Uh, law and gospel, wonderful sermon. Um, so he, he proclaims Christ risen from the dead. Uh, verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And look at verse 37. When they heard this, so they hear the sermon, they hear the word of God, and it cuts them to the heart, the word does. Well, obviously, because the Holy Spirit is there. <laughs> Where the Holy Spirit is, people cannot help but believe. When Jesus breathes out the Spirit on the cross, the Roman centurion's right there. Spirit hits him. It can't help but say, this is surely the Son of God. He believes. And the people are all believing now, so they're cut to the heart, and they're asking the practical question. What's the practical question? What should we do? What do we do now, right? What do we do? 
Okay? They believed the word. They've heard the word. The Spirit's created the faith. But now it's like, on this, what, what do I do now? What does that mean? Right? And they say, uh, Peter says, repent, be baptized. Everyone in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You see that the, the house is starting to be built, the chicken coop. Right? This, this is, where, this is how, how you build it, by repentance and baptism. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It's always tied back to this promise. Your sins are forgiven. And you'll receive the Holy Spirit. This promise, right? the promise that your sins are forgiven, this promise of baptism, it's for you and for your children. It's for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And there were many other words that he bore witness and he continued to exhort them. He's encouraging them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who heard his word, received the word, they were baptized. And 3,000 souls were added that day. Now what do they do? Here's what the church gathers around. The very first thing that they gather around. Acts 2.42 They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. That's there. Wouldn't it be weird if we had church? Where, well, what's the, what's the apostles' teaching? A sermon, the readings of the scripture, the word, the word, the gospel, the law and the gospel. Uh, what Peter just preached, right? Here's prophet Joel. This is what he says. Here's what it means, systematic theology. You killed him. Christ raised him from the dead. Repent and be baptized. Wouldn't it be weird if you went to a church service where there was no word of God? It wouldn't be a church service. Oh, uh, what are we doing here, right? Um, this was fundamental. It was the thing that the church gathered around from the beginning, the word, um, Acts 2, the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship. The next thing that they list. Breaking of bread. Breaking of bread. The Eucharist. That's what they gathered around. Now, we'll see as we read these books, it would have been so weird the first thousand years of the church to come to a church service and there not be the breaking of the bread. The first thousand years of the church, we have all this historical document showing they celebrated every time they gathered on the Lord's Day. Um, As we see even in Acts chapter 20, what when they gathered on the Lord's day for the breaking of the bread. This is fundamental to what the church is gathering around. And what's the the last thing that they list? Um, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of the bread and the prayers. Wouldn't it be weird to come to a church service where we didn't pray? What's Jesus called at the house of the Lord? A house of prayer. So the early church is always gathered to pray. Um, for those who have hymnals on their on their table, open up to the divine service one fifty one. What's the the heading there in red? Confession and absolution. It's the first thing that we do as a church because honestly we're lazy. The church used to do confession and absolution the night before where you would 
register for communion, confess your sins to your pastor, and then Sunday you were ready to go. That was the practice up until like 100 years ago. Oh, really? My folks always had to put in and announce it. They called it announcing. Announcing. Okay. So 50 years ago, maybe? Maybe not even that. Wow. So, not too long. Yeah, 60s, 60s, I can remember that still happening in the early 60s. Okay. So there was a time where you would come confess your sins. Before I was born. Um, But now, because the church doesn't do that, um, historically, we've made a recent change. We just stick it to the very first part of our service. Very first part of our service, we're all going to confess our sins because that is the entrance into forgiveness. Forgiveness of sins is for those who are sinners. So if you have sins to confess, then then come, confess, be absolved, and uh, receive the sacrament. Um, so that's what, so we start the service with, with confession and absolution. Now, turn the page. What's the heading on 152? Service of the word. Service of the word. So that whole, that whole part of the, of the liturgy, the divine service, is God serving us through the apostles' teaching, gathering around the word. So we hear scripture after scripture after scripture. We have an Old Testament reading. We have an epistle reading. We have a gospel reading. We have a sermon on those readings. Um, that's the word service of the word then we flip to page so this is all word service then we get to page 159 and we have in bold letters the prayers of the church prayers this is the time that we pray on 159 it's in black yeah and then turn to 160 what do we see in bold letters Service of the sacrament, the breaking of the bread. This liturgy, this divine liturgy, it goes back to Acts chapter 2. That these three things is what the church gathers around. The word, the Eucharist, and prayer. Um, And this has been handed down through the centuries, even to today. The church continues to gather around the same word, the same breaking of the bread, and offer our prayers to the same Lord. So, next week, we're getting into this book, and we're going to look at how the church gathered the first 1,000 years. So, if you're really gung-ho, that's chapters 2 and 3. You can skip chapter 1, because he's laying down foundational thoughts. He's laying down that systematic theology of what worship is, and we've already covered that. If you want to review it, you can. But chapter 2, he gets to the early church, the sacrament in the early church, and there's some um, interesting things there. And then in chapter 3, he talks about the Middle Ages. So um, I'm going to hand these out. I have next week... I'm go- we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3. So um, it's, it's, it's just historical evaluation of what the church has, what she practiced a long time ago. And uh, we'll talk about those chapters. And then I'll, uh, I'll put
put this question out here now so that you have a week to think about it because I'm going to ask the same question next week. But since we're diving into historical and practical matters at this point, um, I, I want to ask the question that when you heard, for the first time, when you heard that the church was moving towards weekly communion, what were your initial thoughts or um, questions? And then um, since going through these nine weeks together, are those initial thoughts and questions still lingering? And if they are, would you be willing to ask them in class so that we could make sure that we talk about them together? Um, so I'll ask that same question next week, but just wanted to give you a heads up so you can think about it. Let's end with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us.